Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. How are you all? Are you okay? Well, it's been a stormy day here so far. So uh, the house is still standing. So I'm taking that as a plus. Dog's poorly again. Had to, took her to the vet yesterday. And they said, oh, yeah, this isn't looking good. She needs to stay with us and have a little procedure. Oh, no, I had to leave her. And then they phoned me a few hours later and said, oh, all done. Can you can you come and get her? Can you come and get her as quickly as possible? Because she keeps giving us all filthy looks. I said, yes, that's because my dog doesn't need any drama lessons. She is very good at making her feelings known immediately. Um, So, yeah, she'd had enough of them. She did not approve, but it does seem to have helped. So that's something. Now, before we get started, I need to say a huge thank you to whoever goes by the name Books Life Things because they they left the loveliest review on Apple iTunes. And trust me, it makes such a difference in the old battle of the podcast algorithm. So thank you so much. It it really does mean a lot. And what else means a lot is we've got some great books. Well, we've got some great books. We've got some good books. And then we've got, mm, uh, yes, well, let me tell you, let me tell you the range of books that we've got today. I think you'll be pleased. Um, so we, first of all, we've got Take Your Breath Away by Linwood Barclay. And Linwood's coming on to talk to us. So that's going to be fabulous. Um, Then we've got Good Intentions by Kazim Ali. Then we've got The Christie Affair by Nina de Gramont. Uh, The Last Good Funeral of the Year by Ed Ochlochlin. I'm saying it like that. Ochlochlin. Why have I just suddenly channeling a Scottish accent? Anyway, there we go. Let's not dwell on that one. And The Woman in the Purple Skirt by Natsuku Imaru. Um, So, as I say, quite a selection. And let's get started. So, Take Your Breath Away um, by Linwood Barclay. I'm going to put the other... Shall I put the other books down or shall I just have them there on my knee? What if they all fall down and then make a noise? That's what's going to happen, isn't it? Um, Okay, here we go. Let me read you the blurb for this because this... I love this book. I truly love this book. One weekend, while Andrew Mason was on a fishing trip, his wife, Bree, vanished without a trace. Most people assumed Andy had got away with murder, but the police couldn't build a strong enough case against him. For a while, Andy hit rock bottom. He drank too much, was abandoned by his friends, nearly lost his business and became a pariah in the place he'd once called home. 
Now, six years later, Andy has put his life back together. He sold the house he shared with Bree and moved away for a fresh start. When he hears his old house has been bulldozed and a new house built in its place, he's not bothered. He settled with a new partner, Jane, and life is good. But Andy's peaceful world is about to shatter. One day, a woman shows up at his old address screaming, Where's my house? What's happened to my house? And then, just as suddenly as she appeared, the woman, who bears a striking resemblance to Brie, is gone. The police are notified and old questions and dark suspicions resurface. Could Brie really be alive after all those years? If so, where has she been? It soon becomes clear that Andy's future and the lives of those closest to him depend on discovering what is going on. The trick will be whether he can stay alive long enough to unearth the answers. Let's do first sentence as well. So, prologue. Hmm. Prologue. We can simply kill them, but there are alternatives you might want to consider. If we even have any, Bree Mason said, maybe it's just one. Um, I love this book. I think, you know, Linwood is one of those authors that for me, I just trust him. I know what he's going to deliver will sort of be entertaining in the way that it takes you in straight away. You want to keep reading to discover what happens. You think you've got your view and then your view is constantly changing as you're reading. You know, chapter one, I know exactly what happened. Chapter two, oh, no, I think actually something different happened. Chapter, th- you, you know what I mean. Um, he's consistently great. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was a good book. Um, great read. It's already out now in hardback ebook and audiobook. Um, so I would really, yeah, I'd really recommend it. I thought it was great. Um, but anyway, enough of me going on and on. Let's talk to Linwood now. So Linwood Barclay, whose latest book is Take Your Breath Away. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, Find You First was amazing. How would you top that? And and you did with this book. I mean, how did you get the idea for this latest book? So I had an idea for a kind of a setup or a scene that I had this idea several years ago, I think. And it was very quickly, which is basically the, the opening or the second chapter of this book, is a, a woman pulls into in front to the front of her house unloading groceries. It's as if she's only been gone a few minutes, long enough to buy some, you know, the week's the week's groceries. And she looks at her house and she says, Where's my house? What's happened to my house? Now she's at the right address and there is a house there. But there was in the past a, another house that used to be there that was torn down several years ago and a new one built in its spot. And the woman who has pulled into this driveway looks to the neighbors a lot like the woman who once lived in the old house who disappeared six years ago. Mm-hmm. And so now she's just pulled into the drive as if she's only been gone, you know, an hour, wondering where her house went. And, and I had that scene in my head for the longest time thinking that's such a cool opening but I really have no idea what happened. So, so I really, and I couldn't figure out for a long time what it was that might have happened that brought the, that, those set of circumstances into play. And, and then I guess whatever it was a year or more ago, I thought, yeah, I know what it is now. I know what's, uh, uh, I know what happened. So then I thought, I'm going to do that book. And did that conclusion come to you almost fully set as, as a complete jigsaw piece, or did it still take some evolving? It pretty much came out like I really wanted to know before I started writing this book what happened and um, 
I really wanted to know what, what, what the foundation for the story was. So when I knew that, uh, I was able to get going. I mean, I sort of wrote, I, you know, as I kind of do when I start a book before I actually start writing and I spend a week or two kind of just making some notes and I'm sitting there at the kitchen table, sort of looking at these notes thinking, okay, what are the 10 possible explanations for what happened here? And came up with a few and then came up with one. I thought, yeah, I think that's the one. And so when I had that, then I was able to get going. And when you were actually then writing it, did you make any changes, whether subtle or significant, or were you completely set on how it would all transpire? Well, I had it sorted out what the underlying, you know, yeah, what brought that situation to bear. But a lot of the other sort of tangential issues, all those other things, a lot of those I work out as I go along, and and so they're not all fully formed. But I I kind of com- I kind of compare it to getting in a car in New York and driving to L.A. You you know where you're going to end up, but you've got a hundred different ways to get there. And so it's while I'm on that route that I see opportunities that I didn't know existed, say, in the story. And I think, oh, I can do this and I can do that. But I'm still coming back to that that main line that will take me where I'm going. And I suppose that as you're driving that distance, you might go past a turning and think, no, it'll be fine. But then you do have to turn back and, and take that turning. Is it the same when you're writing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you want to make that, if you're going to make a really wrong turn, you hope it's towards the end of the journey. Because if it's at the beginning, yeah, you can picture that, that V, that when you come to that fork in the road, if it goes, you know, if it's early on, you get, you end up someplace very, very, very far away from where you want to end up. But, um, and that's why, like I said, I like to know where my end point is before I get started. I mean, I did, I think over the last 12, 13 years or so, there was at least one book where I wasn't sure of the end point when I started and it went horribly wrong and that book never came out. I just pitched it. So, so I like to know where I'm going. And do you have um, a strong intuition as you're, to use the same example, driving along of when a turn is necessary and do you trust that instinct now? Oh yeah. I, I, you know, people say that I have a lot of twists in my books and I guess that's true. But I think oftentimes those twists or that sort of sleight of hand are all just in the way that you present them. So, you you know, when I'm getting towards the end of a chapter and I think, what's the most logical way for this chapter to end? And is there some way that I can make that not happen? Can I just throw something in at the end of a chapter? And those are those little sort of little sleight of hand, little twists. And they may not even be huge, but it's where you present them. I always think that, that, um, I mean, I was a kid of the 60s, addicted to television. And to me, chapter breaks are commercial breaks. And you always end them in a way that someone has to come back, you know. I mean, when you, if you deliver some sort of great twist in the middle of a chapter, I sort of think, no, that's all wrong. Don't do it there. It's all just like, there's something about a chapter end where you see this white space at the end of one chapter and a white space at the beginning of the next and to me, that sends this kind of subliminal message that something happened here. You know, that's why we're taking a break. And that's why we have to keep turning those pages because we <laughs> we need to know what's, what's happening. Um, for me, I think it felt like uh, this book and, and all your books, they're constantly shifting focus. I think I've seen the full picture and I know what's going on, but you just keep revealing more of that picture. 
Yeah, and I like having, you know, the, the earlier books that I wrote were pretty much entirely first person. We were with our main character the whole mm -hmm. way through. And then I reached the point as the books went on, I thought, you know, that's not working for me because I want to be able to show, I want to take the reader into rooms and situations that our main character doesn't know about so that the reader knows some things that, you know, the reader wishes you could tell the main character, like, you really shouldn't go there or, you know, don't talk to those people because that's going to be really bad because, because you know that. And I think, and I think that allows you to kind of heighten tension and suspense if, uh, I mean, you want to keep you want to keep lots of things hidden from the reader, so there are surprises. But at the same time, it's kind of neat when they know things that your main character doesn't, and uh, so it, it, it you know they, it, so you you think I know that he's in deep trouble doing this, and I wish I could tell him. And we meet Andrew Mason, whose um, old love is is Bree, and has this new woman as well. And I felt a lot of the book was about old lives and new lives and yeah. that seemed a bit of a change to um certainly that your last book find you first yeah i mean i've got my character andrew who's you know whose wife did vanish six years ago and the police for a long time have always be have always believed that he had something to do with it and so he's tried to move on from all of that never knowing you know what happened he's, he's met a new woman and he has not told her about his what happened with his first wife and the suspicions against him and so forth mm -hmm. and and i and as i was writing it i started getting to this kind of situation that reminded me of the movie castaway the tom the tom hanks movie which is what happens if you know if you move on with your life because your spouse is gone or missing or whatever and then many years later that 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 person what if that person reappears to whom who are, who are you loyal to like where what do you do at that point do you you know, do you leave your current partner and go back to the old one? Or do you have to tell the old one, look, I've got a new life now. So it started to get into that, those kinds of questions as well, which was a little different than anything I think I had done before. It allowed me to sort of enter some different territory. And what a territory it was. I won't give anything away. But uh, and just like you had the idea for this book for some time, the concept of it, mm -hmm. do you have... Do you carry a bag with you with lots of different <laughs> ideas that you've all got on Simmer? That's right, that's right. I have a backpack, this little rucksack <laughs> on my shoulder, and it's just like if I leave that somewhere on the on the stub subway or whatever, all those ideas are gone. No, you know, I don't have like I mean, I probably come October of this year, I should start. I'll be starting another book, and it, as I sit here talking to you, I have absolutely no idea what it will be. I don't have any idea in my back pocket, any sort of thing I've been thinking about for a long time, nothing. And so that sort of will that if this were the end of September, that would be scarier. But I'm hopeful that between now and then yeah. something will just hit me. I need sort of I figure there are these kind of ideas that are floating around out in the ether and I just have to catch one of them a year that is 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 strong enough mm. to, you know, hold up a one hundred thousand word novel. And so I don't have that yet. And I, as I, I wish I did have that um, backpack full of notions. That would be really handy. I know I did an event one time with Ian Rankin, and Ian said he has all these little scraps of paper with all these ideas written on them. He tucks in a drawer, and and I remember saying, if you're not using all of them, if you wouldn't mind, you could just 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 <laughs> yeah. put a couple of them in an envelope and send them to me. That would be just great. You must be good at working under some sort of 
pressure or stress then because not having any idea of what the next book is going to be about must take a certain sort of character uh well i don't know i find uh, contracts are motivating you know when 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 you've signed (laughs) when you've signed a deal to produce a book you at some point you just think yeah that'll that'll kick up an idea i mean that's i i have this not i wouldn't even call it panic but there's a bit of angst every year but i mean take your breath away i think is is my 21st novel so i can look back through 20 other books that when i finished each one thinking oh i don't know if i'll ever have another idea and something eventually comes along so i've kind of gotten past being too worried about that i figured something will come some or something will happen either in the news or even on the home front or something that will just spark an idea and i just have to be open to that if i were to sit if i sit down and just think okay what let's come up with an idea it won't happen uh i just have to kind of put it out of my head and then something will just kind of land i think that will that will work for me but but the panic's not i mean i've you know i spent 30 years in newspapers before I started writing books full time. And, you know, you, and a lot for 13 of those, 14 of those years, I was writing three columns a week and you couldn't worry about, you know, when you were writing a column for like Wednesday, what am I going to write for Friday? Cause just mm. something would come along. Yeah. You know? Yes, that's true. So that sort of conditioned you to just mm-hmm. when you need to, head down and do the work. I think so. And and I think working in newspapers also taught me that there's nothing precious about this kind of work. It's a job. You know, this sitting around, you know, the sort of romantic notion of waiting for the muse to strike. I mean, that's just, I don't know, maybe that works for some people, but for me, it's job. You know, I, I love to go on an occasional rant about writer's block because I think, isn't it adorable that we are the only profession that has an actual condition to explain not doing our job? You know, like, <laughs> where's like where's plumber's block? You know, where's where's <laughs> teacher's block? I just that's like, oh, I just couldn't fix that toilet today. I was just, you know, I just didn't have it in me. And and to get sympathy for that condition. Oh, I know. Isn't it? It's, you know, oh god, people. Oh, you've got writer's block. I totally understand. So you're not the sort of person that wafts round with a silk scarf and saying, "Oh, I'm a I'm a writer." Yes. This is yeah, I know. I'm not that guy. <laughs> yeah. I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy sitting in the with a lap with his laptop at Starbucks, looking doing the whole writer thing in the corner. You know, wistful, <laughs> wistful. People come. Oh, they're like, oh, you must be a writer. Ooh, you know, just no. I'm just a guy sitting up in his room, looking out the window. You talk about how, you know, working as a journalist and and it was a job. So for some people, writing is also an escape. You're able to shut the world out when the words are coming. Does that apply to you or is it? I've never really thought of it that way. I really haven't as an escape because I'm not, I mean, it is is certainly an isolating kind of a job Mm -hmm. and it's, you really are working alone. I like working when I was, you know, when I worked in a newsroom and you were a team and you were all putting this thing together. It's very much, it's a very solitary kind of occupation, but I don't look at it as, boy, I get to do this because now I can escape and get away from everything. It's, I think that's just sort of one of the, the aspects of the job is that it's isolating, but I don't, that's not for me a part of it that is you know, to be enjoyed or to revel in is uh, mm. uh, there've been no book tours and so forth. I mean, book tours at least were an opportunity to finally go and see people and talk to people who'd read the books and, and sign them and autograph them. And, you know, so that's, uh, that's certainly been one of the downsides to the last couple of years. 
And I was interested in that, whether your view on writing has changed in the last couple of years. Is it just more that you're looking forward to going out and seeing people? Nothing's really changed for me in terms of how I do my work. I mean, like, like I say, it's even pre-pandemic, writing is an isolating, is a very solitary kind of occupation. So I, I, I've heard from others uh, to sort of focus and, and really get to the job. And there may have been a bit of that earlier on when we had the news on, you know, 10 hours a day, like wondering what's happening next and so forth and so on. But it's it didn't really have an impact on me in that way. And I just wondered, because, you, I mean, you've got so much experience of working with editors and publishers. When they come to you and say, well, we'd like to make this suggestion. What about changing this? Do you... Do you know when what they're suggesting is right? And do you have that, again, that internal knowledge of, no, actually, we need to stick with what, what we put in the book. I know that that will work. Yeah, I mean, I've, I mean, every book I have done has gotten better from working with editors who can point out things that I may not have been able to see. Um, I don't always agree, and if and and sometimes I'll push back and say no, I've done this for this reason, and mm-hmm. and so forth. But I mean, we, there's, we can usually accommodate each other and, and see each other's point of view. And like I say, I've had books that that I did massive rewrites on because editors pointed out sort of some basic fundamental problem with it. And you know, and you keep learning with every book. I mean, I I I mean, I've written the twenty second book and delivered. I've I've finished it a couple of weeks ago and no one's really had a good chance to read it yet but i mean i'm brave as i sit now i think yeah i think i got that when i nailed it and i'm for sure as i i can just guarantee that someone's going to find some problem with it and i'll go oh yeah and it's really what's really annoying is when they're right um <laughs> when, it's really annoying when you think you know i, I totally got this figured out and then and then i've had this when i've sort of dipped my toe into screenwriting the last few years and and you know, see, you'll, you'll hand in a draft of a of a screenplay, and then you get these massive notes back, and I just want to just start screaming and yelling. And then I read the notes, and I go, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." And that's when it's really annoying when it turns out that they're right. I hate. But that, that takes a certain character to accept that and allow that. I th- I think. Well, and I've been on the other side of it too because before I was a, a columnist in newspapers, I mean, I spent twelve, thirteen years as an editor. Were in newspapers, and I was on the other side, and I was dealing with reporters and writers who, you know, this is a great thing you've done, but it doesn't work because of this, or it needs that, and this is why we have to change it. And so I've been on both sides. So is the first draft your favourite part of the writing process? Ooh, that's interesting. Um, I think my favourite part is when it's done. Uh, I really am. I really think, I think that the worst part is when you've done the first draft and you give it to your, to your publisher and your editors are reading it. And I always find that's like waiting for test results to come back from the doctors. I mean, am I going to be okay? Or it's going to be really bad. So I, I think that, um, and sometimes actually as much as I, when I, as much as I dread getting notes back about, you know, revisions on a book, uh, when I first get them, I just sort of go, oh, God, and I want to jump out the window. But like, well, I'm only on the second floor. I wouldn't even kill myself. So, um, But then I get into it, and I think, oh, the book's getting better. And and when you start, when you're really working, say, on a second draft, and you're making changes, you think, oh, wow, this is actually getting way, way better. So if you could go back to yourself when you were writing book one, is there anything that you would just whisper in your ear? 
Oh wow, that's interesting. It can depends what you count too. Like because I was writing, I was writing novels in my late teens and early twenties, and through my twenties, trying to get books ah. published. And and uh, and we can all be grateful, I think, that nobody bought them. But I mean, I think the very first novel I had that I had published, which was a book called Bad Move, was a really good learning experience because that was a book I went into and started writing without knowing exactly how it was going to end. And I was had two thirds of it done and my agent was reading it and she's very helpful with plot points and stuff. You know, who's our killer in this book? And I said, well, it's either, and she said, stop. She said, stop what you're doing and figure out how the rest of the book is going to go. And so I took a few days and plotted out the rest of the book, just, just making notes and then it was like this revelation. Went, oh, all these sort of, all the, the tumblers fell into place. They were able to write that last third just very quickly. And so that was a good lesson in, in, in knowing where you're going. Don't fly blind, especially when you're into the last third or quarter of a book. You really need to know where you're going. So my last question is, you just had Publication Day um, in the UK. Is Publication Day still an exciting time for you? Oh, yeah. It's very, and it's, and even after, you know, we've been very fortunate. I mean, we've, we, our first week out in the UK with only three day sales, we got to number five. And the second week we got to number four. But before that first week, I was, I'm like always, I'm convinced this is the book that will tank. This is the one that we will we will just just nobody will buy it and if this will be the end of my career and so i'm nervous with i'm i'm kind of anxious with every book that comes out because i think that you i think as a writer you get so close to the material that you can't you don't appreciate you know how if it's good you don't know how good it is or if it's not working you don't you just are so close to it you just don't really have any perspective anymore and so if it is good, you may not even know. I don't know about this book. I think it's, I really have, to, I'm really very much dependent on people like you and readers to, and getting their feedback to know where this one stands. And, and so far, everybody seems to be kind of enjoying this one when I couldn't be more, I couldn't be happier. It's, it stands tall. It definitely does. So, uh, oh, that's good. We just can't wait for more. So keep writing. Linwood Barclay, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus. dot com slash acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. And from one corker of a book to another corker of a book. This one is called Good Intentions by Kazim Ali. It's published on the third of March in hardback. Audiobook and ebook. Let me read you the blurb first of all. Nur and Yasmina are in love. They've been together for four happy years, but Nur's parents don't know that Yasmina exists. As Nur's family counts down to midnight on New Year's Eve, Nur is watching the clock more closely than most. He has made a pact with himself and his girlfriend Yasmina that at midnight he will finally tell his Pakistani parents the truth that he has spent years hiding his personal life from them to preserve his image as the golden child, that he has built a life with a woman he loves and she is black. Nur wants to be the good son his parents ask him to be and the good boyfriend Yasmina needs him to be. But as everything he holds dear is challenged, he is forced to ask, is love really a choice for a second generation immigrant son like him? And let's do the first sentence. Right, the first sentence is set. Uh, December 2018. Nur's two weeks are nearly up and he still hasn't said it. It's the day before he has to go back, returning to a question that he will not know how to answer. There can only be one answer. I want to keep reading it. Uh, I just thought this was a wonderful book. It's thought-provoking. It covers... Issues like race, mental health, family and your role in that family and yourself. You know, what is yourself? How, How, where do you fit in? Why do you fit in? How do you fit? It's just superb. There, there are the chapters sort of veer in different times. And that did confuse me a bit because I don't think I pay that enough attention to chapter titles so I would just be wanting to read more and wouldn't actually notice that there was a different time and then after after reading a few pages I think what that doesn't make sense go back realize the time's changed again so that's just me being being silly old me Um, but it did confuse me a little bit but I just loved it it's a book it's a book that I'm going to be keeping on my shelves it's earned it's earned its place there for sure Um, it was different it was fresh I'm always banging on about how I want fresh writing and I thought it was gorgeous cover as well wins prizes for that too but it's just it's, it wasn't what I was expecting it to be, and that made me love it even more. Um, I learned stuff. I sort of th- it made me think about things. Um, all sorts. Yeah, beautiful. Very good. Very good indeed. Um, and now we go to which one shall I do next? Uh, let's do this one. So the last good funeral of the year by Ed O'Loughlin. And see, I've gone back into into the Scottish. Where's that? Anyway, Philippa, just just talk about the book. Just stop it. 
Okay, so this is also published on the 3rd of March in hardback, ebook, and audio. Um, and I've reviewed a, another book of Ed's previously. And when I heard about this one, I was really intrigued. So this is nonfiction and something quite different. So listen to this. Um, soon the lockdown would start. People would die alone without any proper ceremony. Charlotte's death would be washed away, the first drop in a downpour. Nobody knew it then, but this would be the last good funeral of the year. It was February 2020 when Ed unexpectedly heard that Charlotte, a friend from the old days, had just died young and before her time. He realised that he was being led to reappraise his life, his family and his career as a foreign correspondent, a novelist in a new colder light. This search for meaning becomes the driving theme of his year of confinement. The result is a haunting examination of the author's early life and love. The journalists and photographers with whom he covered wars in Africa and the Middle East, the suicide of his brother his new work as an author, a family home on the edge of a graveyard and the, the mysteries of memory, ageing and loss. So what's the first sentence? This is February and the chapter's called Undecided. You're not doing that right, she told him as she watched him from the bed. He stopped and turned to look at her. Or maybe he hadn't turned to look at her. Maybe he found her reflection in the mirror foregrounded by the razor he held in his hand. That's how a writer would frame it. Um, I really wanted to read this book, so that might make me sound quite strange, but it sounded different again. It's less than 200 pages. Um, yes, it's about death, but there's so much death in it that it sort of normalises death. And I'm not trying to be trivial about that at all, but it is part of life. And um, most of us, are, certainly myself, don't want to think about it. Yet I found this quite a healthy book to read um, because there's no hiding from it. And it's not done in an overly gruesome, overly mournful way. It's just um, a sort of honest questioning book it's not it wasn't what I thought it was going to be there's a lot more inner sort of thinking and pondering um but I, it depends where you are in your life and what you want to read if you're thinking well it's non-fiction less than 200 pages talking about 2020 and death and looking back on life that sounds interesting then I think you'd love it if you've heard that and, you, and you're like oh no 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 I just want to read you know nice happy fiction um, about uh, lilacs growing and birds tweeting then possibly that this isn't a book for you um, but it very much has its place and uh, yeah I was just really uh, yeah really intrigued by it so that is the last good funeral of the year. Right, we're going to have to talk about this one. The Christie Affair by Nina de Gramont. This, this book is all over social media. Everyone's talking about it. The reviews I've seen have been most good or raving about it. My copy had sprayed edges, so I was very pleased about that. Um, it came, I read it straight after I read The Maid which I loved. And I don't know, I don't know if it's harder for the next book after one you've loved to be as good, but this fell flat for me. 
I'm afraid. Got to be honest. Um, as I read this, I just I didn't I was so invested in wanting to love this book. Um, so I went into it with maybe high expectations. Maybe that was the problem. But I just thought, who do I care about in this book? I wanted to love it so much. And I just got cross. Um, it was just it was unfulfilled. It unfulfilled me. It was like a box of chocolates where you read the descriptions and you think, I'm going to love every single one of these chocolates. And you open it and the first one you're like, oh, well, I'll never eat that again. And the second one you're like, well, that's even worse. And once you're onto the third or the fourth one, you just think, I'm not, not eating these chocolates. They're going away for the Harvest Festival <laughs> gift, if you know what I mean. But before I go on, let me read you the blurb. Agatha Christie's world is one of glamorous society parties, country house weekends and growing literary fame. Nano Day's world is something very different. Her attempts to escape a tough London upbringing during the Great War lead to a life in Ireland marred by a hidden tragedy. After fighting her way back to England, she set her sights on Agatha because Agatha Christie has something Nan wants and it's not just her husband. Uh, where's the blurb? For, uh, well, we've done the blurb. Let's do first sentence. Part one. Here lies Sister Mary. A long time ago in another country, I nearly killed a woman. It's a particular feeling, the urge to murder. First comes rage, greater than any you've ever imagined. You know, it's such a shame. It looks amazing, um, like a lovely box of chocolates, but it's just yuck. I couldn't believe it. I was... I was saddened by this. So it could be that I read it at the wrong time, that my hopes were too high. I had high hopes, as the song goes, but I, it did it did nothing for me. Um, and once I was sort of halfway through, I just sped, read it to the end just so it was done. I didn't want to spend any more time in the book. I'm so sorry. As I say, that's just me. Other reviews have been incredible about it. So don't just because I just because it didn't work for me doesn't mean it won't work for you. But um, let me know what you think. I'd be so interested. Maybe it's one. Maybe I need to keep it and go back to it because I was really looking forward to it. Anyway. Uh, finally, The Woman in the Purple Skirt, which is written by Natsuku Imamura and translated by Lucy North. Um, it must be a hard thing to translate a book, I think, because you can and for the author as well to sort of allow the translator because they have the power to change maybe not the facts of the book, but the emotions of the book. I think that's a very interesting relationship between author and translator. Anyway, she's waffling. What did we think of the book? I wasn't sure. I loved it in some ways. Um, it was easy to read. It's different, but it's clearly written. Um, and if you're just you're not sure what book to pick up next and you want something that is unlike anything that you've read before, then this may be it. Let's read the blurb. The woman in the purple skirt seems to live in a world of her own. She glides through crowded streets without acknowledging any reaction her presence elicits. Each afternoon, she sits on the same park bench, eating a pastry and ignoring the local children who make a game of trying to get her attention. The woman in the purple skirt is being watched. Someone is following her, always perched just out of sight, monitoring which buses she takes, what she eats, who she speaks to. But this invisible observer isn't a stalker. It's much more complicated than that. 
Um, it, it's sort of funny in places. It's just something different. And it's one of those where at the end you're just like, what? I yeah, I did. I enjoy it. I found it really interesting. And I read it after the Christie affair. So maybe that maybe that's why I was just so desperate for something that I I would enjoy. But yeah, it was um, perfectly good read. And so let's just recap the particular. Oh, did I do first sentence? Oh, Philip. You would think I would just know. It's because my brain goes into telling you about the book and I just lose track. Okay, here we go. This is the first sentence of The Woman in the Purple Skirt. There's a person living not too far from me, known as the woman in the purple skirt. She only ever wears a purple coloured skirt, which is why she has this name. So you see, it's written in a very accessible way, certainly very different. So let's just recap over the books. We had The Brilliant Take Your Breath Away by the brilliant Linwood Barclay. And thanks to Linwood for coming on. Um, we had the superb book called Good Intentions by Kazim Ali. We had the thought-provoking book, shall we say, called The Last Good Funeral of the Year by Ed O'Loughlin. And then we had The Bewildering, The Christie Affair by uh, Nina de Gramont. And finally, The Woman in the Purple Skirt by Natsuku Imamura. And that's it. That's your selection. Those are your five books. Go run, be free. <laughs> be free of me oh we've got some good books to talk about next week and great author to talk to so just look after yourselves and uh, and i'll see you very soon take care now bye bye you've been listening to the quick book reviews podcast that's enough books said no one ever see you again soon Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.